You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transport podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight Transportation Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. Today, we're delighted to have Christian Weatherby as our guest on the podcast. I've known Chris for a real long time. I think we met even before your time at FBR while you worked at Merrill. And just to give you a little flavor of who Chris Weatherby is, he's a managing director and lead analyst on the Air Freight Surface and Marine Transportation. Uh, he's been a senior analyst at City Research since 2010. He covers transportation and shipping since 2005. Prior to joining City, Chris was the senior transportation analyst at FBR Capital Markets, where he joined following 10 years at Merrill Lynch, including the last five as a publishing analyst on the highly ranked Bank of America Merrill Lynch equity research team covering the industrial sector. Chris ranked number three in air freight and surface transportation and runner-up in shipping in Institutional Investors 2022 survey and has been ranked in the top three in air freight and surface transportation for the last five years. Chris received a BA degree from the University of Maryland and, and completed his dual focus MBA degree in finance and accounting with honors at Fordham University. Uh, go Rams. Uh, I, uh, I got my MBA there too. So, uh, Chris, welcome to the uh, to the podcast. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate appreciate the, uh, the the long and lengthy introduction there. I don't know if I can live up to it, but I'll I'll do my best. Appreciate it. It's always good to see I'm, you, man. I'm, I'm sure you can. So, there's a lot to talk about. Um, you know, we're in the th- the third quarter, going into the fourth quarter. You know, I don't want to make this too short short term, near term in nature. But you know, from your vantage point, you know, what sectors are you looking at that you're kind of the most positive on going into 2024? I mean, I think right now in transports, it's tough. We're going through what has been a pretty challenging destock on the retail side, which is causing volume weakness across the board. I think there's probably a couple of areas of relative strength that stand out the most. The first is the less than truckload side of the house. So that's a small subset of the overall trucking space. That's strong right now following the, uh, the, the, the closure of yellow. And then you have FedEx on the parcel side. It's kind of going through a, a self-help process 
that's helping with cost cutting to offset some of the macro headwinds that they're facing. So those are the two areas that probably are strongest. On a relative basis, we are looking at the rails, the U.S. rails in particular, as a group that could be a little bit stronger as we move into next year, as we get volume to start to firm up a little bit. Comps are pretty easy. So that's a, that's a group that we're looking at. We actually put a note out yesterday about it that I think is kind of interesting. And so those are names that we're, we're kind of focused on right now. Yeah, so the the rail uh, sorry the LTL industry, the less than truckload industry, has gotten kind of sexy as of late with the with the bankruptcy of Yellow and all the opportunity there. Kind of what's the ripple effect from the Yellow bankruptcy from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, you know, you had a, a company that was relatively large in a relatively consolidated industry, so that can become interesting, particularly when you know bankruptcies ultimately lead to liquidation. So essentially, you take that capacity and, and remove it from the market immediately while the freight needs to be distributed amongst the rest of the players. So, you know, you have the top 10 players and LTL represent about 70% of the market. My coverage within that is the top of the top 10. And so when we think about that share, that six or 7% of freight is about 9% of revenue that gets kicked around to, um, you know, to some of our coverage and really has the potential to tighten up their networks a little bit. So all of a sudden volumes are now up on a year of year basis in LTL and all of a sudden pricing, which was strong to begin with, has gotten a bit stronger as they're, they're moving some of the transactional freight uh, up in terms of pricing. So that I think is, is, is an interesting place to be following the closure of yellow. And, and ultimately, I think there's still going to be a few more legs to this to work out. Pricing is going to be the key for next year. Expectations are high, but it does seem like. Uh, the group should be able to continue to compound what's been already good pricing. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the group definitely seems like they have the wind at their back. Uh, is there a name in particular that you, that you like more than the others in the LTL space? Yeah, we're, we're still um, you know pretty constructive on XPO. That's our top pick in, in the LTL space. We actually opened up a catalyst watch, a positive catalyst watch on it today. You know, we're, we, we think not only are the short-term earnings going to look good, we think the third quarter should be pretty solid. We also think that there's going to be growing appreciation of the fact that this company is now operating differently than it did before. I think the thing about XPO was that it was a conglomerate of freight uh, several quarters ago, really a year or two ago, and following the spinoff of GXO and following the spinoff of RXO, you have a, a much more consolidated, almost pure play on the LTL space. They still have some European transportation exposure, but they're much more concentrated in that space. And they brought in some new leadership, both on the board as well as the COO, Dave Bates, who came over from Old Dominion. We think he's doing a really good job improving the, the network and improving operations. And I don't think that there's a meaningful difference between their network and some of the best in class players like Old Dominion and Saya. So we think as investors begin to appreciate this, not only do you see earnings inflection, but you also see multiple appreciation. I think that's really the, the key to drive you know, better performance as we move forward. It's already been a good performer. We think there's more upside to come. Yeah. And, and old, for those that don't know, Old Dominion has had the, the best margins in the industry for the last 10 years, give or take, uh, maybe maybe not every quarter, but uh, pretty much most quarters. Uh, they're, they're, so getting an operator from there is, is definitely going to help XPO. Um, you know, it's also interesting. XPO is, uh, is a company that, you know, I know you follow for a long time. I know you used to follow its predecessor company, Conway, which is kind of now what the LTL business is. You know, where, where do you see XPO going? How long do you think it's going to take them to spin out the, the last part of their non-LTL business that they're looking to uh, to get rid of? 
Yeah, I, I think that the uh, exit of Europe, which was something that they were very focused on, uh, you know, over the course of the last several quarters, is probably on hold for the time being, as you can imagine, in this macro environment, um, you know, sort of uh, getting rid of European transportation assets is probably not the easiest thing in the world. And we're not sure that what uh, XPO thinks the assets are valued um, or where they should be valued versus where the market might be willing to pay today is, is necessarily aligned. So our sense is we're probably going to hold on to Europe for a period of time uh, and we'll see you know, how that plays out. As of now, there, there's nothing that I can see that would suggest that's going to happen anytime soon. So we're probably going to stick around with you know a couple of hundred million dollars of, of EBITDA coming from the European piece of the business to, uh, to complement what they're doing on the LTL side. Mm-hmm. And besides XPO, do you have, uh, are you positive in any other of the LTL names? And we are. Uh, we have a buy rating on our best as well, which is one of the smaller names uh, in the space on a market cap basis. Uh, we think that company also is, is sort of greatly underappreciated from a multiple standpoint. You know, there's a lot of long history in the LTL space, and there's really, you know, kind of three uh, unionized players, our best being one of them. What I think is interesting that sometimes people don't realize is that during COVID, there was legislation passed. It was basically pension legislation that was passed that took off-balance sheet liabilities that companies like ArcBest and other unionized LTL players had and moved it into PBGC, which ultimately uh, basically puts the government more on the hook for longer-term shortfalls in multi-employer pensions. I think historically, investors always sort of looked at that off-balance sheet liability tried to slap a value on it and put it into the enterprise value calculation. So that's why companies like ArcBest always traded at a very low multiple. That doesn't exist anymore. I'm not sure people are necessarily quite that aware of it because ArcBest isn't necessarily as mainstream, say, as an Old Dominion or a Saya. And I think if you look at it with that in mind, ArcBest is extraordinarily cheap relative to the peer set. Now, it has some of the hurdles, like a new Teamster contract, which is awfully expensive. So our numbers are not quite as high for them or hasn't, haven't moved as high for them as they have some of the other players. But I do think there's a lot of value in that name. So that's another name that we like. And I wouldn't say that we don't like OD and Saya. I think they're both very good companies. We just didn't chase after the big moves that we saw uh, in the immediate aftermath of Yellow's closure. Right. And do you think uh, Arc Best uh, diversification, because they do, they're in a lot of different businesses uh, besides LTL, do you think that hurts them or helps them? In the short term, it's probably a challenge. They're going to post a pretty nasty quarter in their logistics business in the third quarter, and that does influence our estimates here in the short term as well as over the course of the next several quarters. So right now, brokerage is not a particularly good place to be, uh, and that is kind of coming through front and center on their numbers in that space. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, your point's a good one, right? People want pure plays, right? They want that direct access to what is a relatively robust and, and kind of be one of the few front, you know, hot freight markets out there. And so, you know, that, that does probably influence to some degree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, very tough comparisons for the for brokers uh, compared to 2022. That That's for sure. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, before uh, FedEx, how uh, it's, it's a, you know, a name that you guys, uh, would you say you put a catalyst call on it? Can you talk? What's a catalyst call? So we put a catalyst watch out on XPO, so not necessarily. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, so we have a catalyst watch out on on XPO, and I think every firm has a little bit of a different one for the audience here to pull back the curtain. Essentially, what that means is, over the course of the next ninety days, we think there's a number of potential events that could help the stock outperform. So that's really what it is. It's trying to put a little bit more emphasis on the top calls that we have. We still really like FedEx. So FedEx is one of the top names in transports, and we've been talking about it now for a while. We upgraded it in the spring after. 
uh, a relatively timely, we could call it lucky, you can debate whether it's lucky or timely, downgrade back in the fall of last year before they ultimately pre-announced. So we are uh, very much in the camp that FedEx has got some good uh, good opportunities for earnings power and stock price appreciation coming. Well, that's why your IR rank has nothing to do with luck. Um, so when you're looking at FedEx, you know, they're, they're, they're expecting to cut a lot of costs through their drive initiative or network 2.0. I think the number is 6 billion uh, with a B. Uh, that's a lot of costs coming out. Are, are you, obviously you like the name, so you think they're going to do it or if not do better than that. Well, I think the interesting thing here is they don't even really need to do the $6 billion, right? And when I say that, what I mean is expectations are low. So if you look at where the street is in terms of earnings estimates for the next couple of fiscal years, clearly there is a potential offset embedded in expectations, meaning we're not seeing $6 billion of operating improvement baked into people's assumptions over the course of the next several years. So I think that's really the, the nice thing from a stock setup standpoint is that there's been skepticism and understandably so, right? Execution over the course of the last couple of years has been um, you know, shaky to say the least. I think it's changed a lot here in the last several quarters, which is quite interesting. We, somebody asked me this recently, sort of how much of that value, that $6 billion is baked into our numbers. And while we don't necessarily have an overly precise estimate of that, if you were to look at the, what our estimates look like and then overlay normal incremental margins from a recovering freight economy over the course of the next couple of years, the implied sort of value is probably somewhere between a billion and a half and maybe two and a half billion dollars, as opposed to the Four billion over the next two years and six billion um, over a little bit of a longer term period. So, like I said, I don't think we're necessarily including that much into it. So, if they end up being more successful than we think, you know, it's kind of upside to the numbers, which is a good thing for the stock. Yeah, and you you, you mentioned uh, kind of a history, unfortunately, of poor execution on FedEx side. Uh, you know, Fred Smith kind of stepped away from the the day to day uh, of the company. Uh, from from your from talking to management, talking to you know the company, do you feel that there's been any sort of a cultural shift? Because because I think a lot of people thought FedEx was maybe running a little too fat. Yeah, I, I think there has been, uh, and that you know w was part of the spark that catalyzed the upgrade back in the spring was the you know our growing belief that something internally had changed. So you know I don't think you can discount the fact that Fred had been running this company as you know, president, chairman, and CEO for 50 plus years when he ultimately stepped down last year. And that changing of the guards, I think, is one thing. Now, he's still there, obviously, on the board, so he still is influential. I don't want to take that away from it. Sure, absolutely. Ended up bringing, you, know, you, you brought Raj in, um, Raj Subramanian, to be the CEO of the company. And I think he brought a little bit of a different perspective. And I think there was an ability um, to take a little bit of a harder line on some of the, the costs and sort of the the, the atmosphere that Fred really, um, I think, encouraged at the company. The reality is, is they treated the people there like family, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I think people thought when they came into FedEx, you had a job for life. I think when you look at what they're doing now, they're fronted with, you know, confronted with the realities of a, of a much more challenging market than they expected when they laid out their longer-term plans a year or so ago, and they're responding to that. So we've seen some reduction in headcount, which we think ultimately is going to be a positive over the long run for the company, uh, and, and that degree of discipline, which I think has been lacking in previous plans, if you will, where they've talked about, you know, the potential to improve profitability. I think that, you know, that that execution, that discipline around costs is something new and we're perceiving it as being new. 
you know, the, the, the interesting thing is we had Raj come down to our conference in Miami. I think Lee, you were at that conference. It's always nice was. to plug for our conference. February Miami <laughs> is not a bad place to be for those of us who live in the Northeast. Um, and, and Raj flew in to do the keynote lunch address. And I thought the fact that he came during their quiet period, right? During the period, they're not necessarily allowed to do too much in terms of talking to investors. He came down specifically to do a webcasted presentation to tell us about the sort of discipline and the change in tone coming from management team, the management team. I think that really went a long way to solidify our belief that something had materially changed. That's not something that Fred would have done. I'm not necessarily criticizing him. I just don't think he felt like he had to, and that really wasn't his thing. But right. Raj, I think, felt a uh, responsibility uh, to, to come to investors and, and, and give us something to work with. And I think they've delivered that in a, in a much better way over the course of the last several quarters. Still early, so we'll see how it plays out, but for the last several quarters, it's been quite successful. Yeah, and for those that know, don't know, you know, Fred, Fred Smith, uh, he's the founder of FedEx, and he's really one of the titans of transportation. He started the uh, express air freight market, really, in the United States, uh, and, you know, really is just a, a trailblazer in terms of an entrepreneur and a, and a business person. Uh, but, you know, uh, obviously, you know, sometimes you do need a, a change in guard. And, and I do agree. I think I think change was warranted. And, and I think it uh, it opens up an exciting new chapter for for FedEx. Um, you know, you, you we're, since we're talking about FedEx and we're talking about parcel, you know, I know I'm sure you get just as many questions about this as I do. What's Amazon doing? Are they going to compete with FedEx and UPS? So what's your take on Amazon? Because they're starting that, they're restarting that program where they're picking up uh, packages. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be on scale uh, anytime soon. But what are your thoughts of Amazon as it relates to FedEx and, and UPS? Yeah, I think from our perspective, um, their competitive offerings are, you know, what we would expect them to be. I mean, they're ultimately entering the market and, and trying to expand a little bit beyond what they do specifically. So they're very good at managing logistics for people who sell through the platform. And I think there is desire to expand a little bit beyond that. I guess the way that we think about it is that shippers make a decision when they're thinking about using Amazon or ultimately going to another player like a UPS FedEx or maybe even the US Postal Service. And it's sort of a decision tree. Either you go with Amazon or you don't go with Amazon. So I think they're a little bit different in terms of the buckets that they offer, or at least the, the addressable market that they're trying to hit. And so we don't worry that what they're what Amazon is doing from a competitive standpoint is necessarily going to influence UPS and FedEx's customers all that directly or competitively. What I think ultimately uh, we would want to see or would need to see to sort of change our mind about that would be a commitment on Amazon's part to build out capacity where they can offer um, at scale capacity during the peak season. You know, Amazon itself is a very peaky shipper for UPS, and obviously it, it moves a lot of volumes during that sort of crucial November, December timeframe every year. I have not seen evidence that they have capacity to add significantly to that, to go beyond their own volume and, add, and offer a lot out to um to customers, to shippers. Until they do that, I feel like they're still participating on the margin of this business. So that's kind of generally our take around it, but clearly they're gonna to continue to do more on logistics. We don't know that it necessarily is ever going to be a sole focus for them where they actually wanna be a quote unquote logistics provider directly for um, 
you know, for a, a large number of players in the space, but I do think that they're going to continue to expand their capabilities. Yeah, and it seems like all their motivation is is to to lower their costs of delivering goods, and if they can kind of um, uh, subsidize it with 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 pickups and deliver, I guess good for them. But but the reality is that the SPs, I don't know, in your neighborhood, they seem pretty busy. I don't know if they're going to have the time or the bandwidth to uh, to be picking up packages along the way. I think that's a big you know a big keyly that you're hitting on here, right? Capacity during. The, the sort of 10 months before the peak season is valuable, but not nearly as valuable as capacity during November and December. And until you are willing to offer your customers that capacity at scale during November and December, it's hard to necessarily put you on the same platform or the same, you know, same level as a company like FedEx or UPS or even the post office. So I think that's something that we're watching very, very closely. It's possible that it changes at some point in the future. As it stands right now, we think a lot of what they're doing on the margin is exactly that, just marginal type of activity. Um, we're watching it. I don't think it necessarily influences the economics of what's happening at UPS or FedEx. Right. And then, um, you know, just going back to, to FedEx, if, if we can, you know, they're they're doing something that, you know, I know the street's been telling them to do for a long time, combining their ground and express networks. Um where do you see the benefits to that from your perspective? And do you think they're really going to be able to do it? Because at the end of the day, they have employees and then they also have independent contractors and those are two separate networks. Yeah, you know, what they're doing is, is challenging. So there's been the discussion of putting these two networks together for a very long time. And, and you know, I think we were excited to hear what they had to say at their drive uh, investor day where they, they announced the consolidation of this on a bigger way. But you have to remember, you go back all the way to sort of the end of 2019, early 2020, they've been talking about something called last mile optimization for a long time. And I think that is that idea of delivering via the ground network express packages that were going to residences essentially. So about a third of the express domestic express business ultimately is um, volume destined for U.S. residences, and they were going to try to do more of that delivery through ground to kind of save money on that. So this is something we've been thinking about and they've been talking about for a while. A lot of those plans got put on hold during the pandemic because of the absolute surge of volume that they experienced, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of 2020 and 2021. Now that things have calmed down a little bit, I think they're kind of going after it again. And it's a good thing at the end of the day, because you need to see, um, I think there's value creation in this. Your point about the independent contractors versus you know employees and unionized employees is a really good one. One of the ways that they've been able to maintain that independent contractor status of their ground delivery network is by keeping a bit of an arm's length in terms of controlling exactly how those ISPs run their routes and do their business by having a degree of time definite service embedded in that, which would come with delivering express packages through the ground network you start to blur the lines there a little bit. So I don't think it's necessarily insurmountable, but it's something that's a little tricky that we're going to need to see how they handle. Um, I think the reality is that this is an important step for them. I think it speaks to how serious they are about sort of the new FedEx going forward. Um, I think right now from a stock standpoint, because that's really at the end of the day, what I'm very focused on, I think the run up to that is probably the easier thing for investors to digest, meaning it's probably got a lower execution risk surrounding it. As we get into next fiscal year, so about 12 months from now, I think that's when some of the heavier lifting around this, you know, sort of um, this network integration is going to happen. We'll see how they kind of get through it. It's going to be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, hopefully it'll go off better than their uh, European network integration with uh, the acquisition of TNT. 
So just uh, switching gears now, you know, you mentioned rails, you know, you think they're going to have easier comps. Um, you know, a lot of people, there's, there's two rails that I think a lot of people like to talk about, at least today, uh, Canadian Pacific and uh, Norfolk Southern uh, for two totally different reasons. Uh, one good, one bad. Uh, what's your take on the industry? Uh, who are your favorite names? Yeah, I mean, listen, we like the rails. Um, we think the rails are different, though. It's probably good to start there. So, you know, we downgraded the rails a while ago, year and a half ago, uh, two years ago, with the idea being that the group was more cyclical. So as volume was soft and we had expected it to be soft, that you were going to see, you know, margins contract because while pricing was still there, what we learned about this group during the pandemic, and this is really maybe more speaking to the U.S. rails than Canada. I'll get to Canada in a minute. But when you think about the U.S. rails, they didn't perform well during the pandemic. And while there was a surge of volume out there, they probably lost a lot of market share because their service wasn't where it needed to be. And really, they were short of, of people. And so headcount has really gone up quite a bit since the lows during the pandemic. And I think the idea here is they needed to staff up. They need to improve service to be able to take advantage of volume opportunities going forward. Unfortunately, that's all come in the face of a pretty extended freight recession. So they're adding a bunch of heads, a bunch of costs. They don't have necessarily volume or revenue to offset that. So it's been a pretty challenging run here. Now, we did upgrade the group back in May. We like the idea of maybe leaning in a little bit early cycle as we were getting towards easier comps in the back half of this year and then ultimately into next year. And we thought as volume came back, you'd see a better relationship between headcount growth, volume growth. You could potentially see good incremental margins. So again, going back to the idea that they're more cyclical, we wanted to upgrade them and get a little bit more constructive going into what we expected to be a little bit of a cyclically stronger period of time. So that's where we stand right now. I think in terms of the group, what we like, our two top names in the space would be CSX and Union Pacific. Norfolk Southern actually, we think probably fits a little bit better on an underweight relative to an overweight CSX pair trade because we think they have very similar end market exposures, but we think CSX's service is better. They're farther along in terms of restaffing their network. I think that has the potential to lead to some market share opportunity for them going forward. And as we've seen with Norfolk and just as recently as this weekend where they had another system outage, they have been plagued with some network issues. And until those are cleared up, I think it's going to be a little bit difficult to see the stock outperform relative to a name like CSX, which seems to be you know, kind of hitting its stride from a service perspective. So we like CSX. Union Pacific, we can talk about it because of the addition of Jim Venna. I think there is an opportunity for it, a little bit more of an operating ratio focused story as we move into next year. So that's really kind of where we're focused. U.S. Rails over Canada and then CSX and Union Pacific is our top picks. Yeah. And, and also, you know, the rails have like pretty much all most of them have embraced precision scheduling railroading, which is PSR, which is for, for those that don't know, it's, it's Six Sigma for the rail industry for the most part. NSC really doesn't have a senior leader there with PSR deep experience. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think that's a hindrance? I'm not sure if it's going to change. I don't know that we've seen any um, outward movement that would suggest it's going to change anytime soon. I think the company and the board right now are comfortable with the leadership that they have. Um, there always is the discussion in rail investing of specific executives, most of which have ties directly to Hunter Harrison, who is sort of the the, the character who instituted PSR in a wide uh, format across multiple railroads, CN, CP, CSX. And so we see people like Jim Venna and Keith Creel who have 
you know, direct ties to Hunter's legacy and ultimately operating, um, you know, in a similar fashion at, at CP and, and Union Pacific. You know, so we always think about who's still available to potentially go and help augment the management team of an existing railroad. And, you know, there's somebody like, like Jamie Boychuk for recently who left CSX potentially could be somebody like that. We don't have any reason to believe necessarily that that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, it could be a potential benefit for a company like Norfolk, but as it stands right now, I think they are running what they view as a strong playbook that does have PSR roots. Um, and, and we'll see ultimately if that has the ability to improve operations as we move forward. Yeah, Boychek's departure came, uh, came to a surprise uh, for us. Um, yeah, but but uh, it seems like they backfilled that pretty well with the, with another executive with, with PSR experience, uh, which, which should help CSX uh, operationally. Um, so, you know, you mentioned your favorite names in the rails being CSX and UP. And maybe I misunderstood. Was that just in the U.S. or are you talking... Uh, so North America. It's a good question, Lee. Yeah. When we think about North American railroads, we prefer the U.S. versus Canada. So the top names would be CSX and UP, kind of given yeah. that approach. Now, within Canada, we prefer CP to CN, and, and we have a buy rating on CP. We still do like that story, right? A lot of what they're doing there is focused on a little bit longer term opportunity around the integration of the Kansas City Southern merger. That was a transformational event for Canadian Pacific. And I think under the leadership of Keith Creel has the potential to be very, very good as we move forward. The reality is in the short run, the comps in Canada are a little tricky, meaning their volume stayed strong through the first quarter of 2023, which means we have a little bit longer to wait before the volume starts to look naturally better on the back of easier comps versus the U.S. guys where comps really started to fall apart at the end of the fourth quarter of 2022. So we have a little bit of a, a run, a heading, a head start um, for the U.S. guys versus Canada. That's part of the reason that we like it. I think over the long run, the CPKC story is quite compelling. And I do think that there's a lot of value added. I've covered, I covered Kansas City Southern prior to the merger for a very long time. That's actually the first stock I initiated on way back in the day, back in Merrill Lynch in 2005. And, and ultimately, we um, see a lot of value in that network. We think the Mexican network has got a lot of potential growth and cost opportunities. I think Keith Creel and his team at CP are probably as good as anybody in terms of the opportunity to unlock that value. So over the long run, I think it's a good story. Yeah, probably when you when you launch covered on, on Kansas City Southern, it was probably a small cap company and like two or three analysts covering it. It was a small group of us, I believe, if I remember correctly, they were they were about a billion dollar market cap when we when we launched. And correct me if I'm wrong, Lee. Here, my numbers going to get a little squirrely, but I think they got taken out for thirty three or so billion dollars is when ultimately CP bought them for something something in that in that in that uh, ballpark. And you know, it was a heck of a run for those guys. It, it certainly was. It certainly was. Um, you know, and you know, if someone's going to turn around the Mexican operations over at uh, the the Kansas City Southern. Uh, legacy network. It's really going to be, in my opinion, Keith Creel. I mean, he is um, probably one of the more inspirational senior managers in our in, in freight transportation. Um, you know, I, I think when I was on the sell side, I, I, I used to I coined the the, the Tony Robbins of transportation. Uh, he was just a great speaker, really motivating, and um, really kind of understands. Uh, the day to day of operating, and and that is through you know his his time with with Hunter Harrison, the Godfather of PSR. <laughs> um, I think that's exactly right. I think what what Hunter and Keith 
really had and what keep this kind of channeling um, from Hunter was that ability to really motivate people and connect with people mm-hmm. and, and really drive people to do things that are difficult. And because, listen, railroading is difficult. It is not easy at all. And we've seen that some folks don't necessarily like to do it. And, and that's been part of the reason why I think, you know, labor has been st- such a sticky issue, particularly for the U.S. guys through the pandemic and in the post-pandemic world. But but Keith has really done a re- remarkable job of motivating his workforce, keeping everybody's pulling in the same direction. And uh, he certainly is captivate to, uh, captivating to listen to, that's for sure. Yep, that is, that is for sure. Um, so just switching gears a little bit, you know, we want to talk a little about truckload, uh, what we sure. got you. Uh, it seems from my vantage point, we're bouncing along the bottom. Uh, what's what's your view on the truckload market? I think you described it very well. Uh, the, the title of our note this morning was still bouncing along the bottom because the there note that we had written a couple of months ago was bouncing along the bottom. Exactly. So uh, we are very much doing that, right? I, I think demand has improved modestly from the lows in the second quarter. So when we were coming out of Chinese New Year, things were very challenged. And since then, we've seen imports pick up. We've seen rail carloads get a little bit better. Intermodal and rail uh, has gotten a little bit better, but not necessarily great. So probably underperforming seasonality to some degree. What we've been disappointed by is we assumed that more capacity would come out of the market more quickly. And so this modest amount of demand would have manifested itself in better spot rates. Haven't seen that at all, right? So we we check on on Bloomberg every uh, you know the beginning of every week to see what rates look like, and, and they have not necessarily gotten any better o- over time. And I think the reality is that capacity has been very stubborn to exit. I think carriers, particularly small carriers, built up a decent amount of uh, capital on the balance sheet through the pandemic when rates were very very elevated, and have been able to withstand kind of loss-making spot rates for longer than you'd imagine, certainly longer than we would have imagined. And so as we stand right now, it feels like capacity is coming out of the market, albeit slowly, and we're kind of waiting for the next sort of shoe on demand. The last 18 months has been a pretty nasty retail or consumer-led destocking of of, of relatively elevated or very elevated inventories. Right. We think that we're now towards the end of that. It'll probably unwind for another little bit, but we think we certainly are towards the end of that process. What the question is, is when the restock is going to happen. That's a lot harder to see. I mean, we have credit card data here at Citi that people report on, and we look at a lot of other metrics and the consumer doesn't necessarily look fantastic. So there are some signs of slowing kind of across the board. And you know, some of the stuff that the Fed's doing does appear to have um, some teeth. And we are seeing some slowdown in some of those consumer spending categories. Ultimately, what I think the group needs is a little bit of that restock. It doesn't need to be a full-on restock, but it does need to see a little bit more power than what we've seen recently. I guess the point probably is... Let's see how the peak season plays out. If the consumer shows up during the peak season, that could spur a first half restock, which would obviously be quite good for the group and something that they desperately need. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we're, we're, our base case is that, uh, you know, you're going to see a seasonal demand, uh, some increase, but obviously not a huge peak, but something that's going to be be good for demand for, for the trucking industry, which should uh, help uh, put, push rates off the, the, the bottom, if you will. Uh, is there is there a name that you like? Because I mean, obviously, um, a lot of these companies have been hammered hard uh, due to yeah. the, the lower rates and lower demand. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we actually would sort of take a little bit of a bent on playing truckload and look at intermodal instead. So we would say a name like J.B. Hunt really stands out to us. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, imports, like I mentioned before, have gotten better sequentially from a low watermark in the second quarter. So we have seen some improved activity, particularly on the West Coast, now that we have a degree of labor certainty that was lacking for the previous year. I think we are seeing a little bit of market share come back to LA Long Beach, and that's been a good thing for J.B. Hunt, who's got a little bit more of a Western structured network, or certainly very strong out in the West. So what that means is that intermodal loads are improving for them. And we think over the course of the quarter, they probably will be modestly positive on average, but maybe more importantly, the exit rate coming out of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, we think is gonna be a little bit more positive. So we probably started the quarter negative in July, probably ended it positive in September, and I think that's gonna carry us into the fourth quarter. Right now, my take is investors in this space, truckload and intermodal, need to see positive data points before they necessarily wanna underwrite these stocks and get more, uh, more interested. We're not getting that with spot rates, but we could get it with J.B. Hunt intermodal loads, and we think intermodal loads will drive the stock there. And that's why we like J.B. Hunt, and that's probably the way we prefer to play the truckload market as it stands right now. Right. And intermodal also get a, a boost from uh, higher diesel prices, which have been on the rise as of late, because, uh, well, there's always a percentage discount uh, from intermodal versus truckload or truck only. Uh, the dollar amount obviously increases as as, as fuel costs increase. So. Uh, that, that could be uh, a tailwind for for the industry as well. Uh, you know, you do talk about JB Hunt. You know, uh, one of the things I love about JB Hunt is their dedicated business. Um, you know, could you talk about that? What you're expecting for dedicated, whether it's JB Hunt or Werner uh, or, or or other companies you cover that have exposure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing about dedicated is it has been a significantly steadier business. Longer term contracts, they tend to have a little bit better pricing story. And so it's not quite as volatile uh, as, as a little bit of the, the cyclicality that we see uh, in the core truckload space. And it's a little less commoditized, right? I mean, there's a, there's it's to some degree a value add aspect of it that, that kind of comes to play. Mm -hmm. So for Hunt, the way we're looking at it is we should see, you know, kind of, when we've seen this the last several quarters, a deceleration in the pace of new trucks added. So their fleet is actually kind of slowed from a growth perspective, which makes sense because that's the reaction that shippers have in a challenging market. It's not necessarily that volume goes down a whole bunch or that pricing goes down a whole bunch. It's that the pace of conversion of these private fleets into these dedicated networks slows down. As a result of that, what happens is you don't have nearly as much startup cost embedded because every new fleet that comes on has a degree of cost and it's probably lower margin right out of the gate before it kind of matures over the course of, uh, of that first contract. So as a result, margins go up, but the top line starts to decelerate and it probably means next year's dedicated growth will be on the lower end. So this year and last year, we're looking at double digit EBIT growth, so profit growth within the dedicated segment for Hunt. That slows down to something in the mid single digits next year. Still a very solid and kind of core business for them. I think the interesting thing about J.B. Hunt is when we're looking at names in the truckload space where there's huge volatility from one year to the next, and we talk about peak and trough earnings quite a bit, Dedicated is a sizable business within their portfolios, like 30, 40% of their profit, but that's been steadily growing over time and through the cycle. And I think that's part of the reason why the stock kind of captures a little bit of a higher multiple is because of that earning stability and ultimately that growth profile of the intermodal business. Right. And JB Hunt's also facing some challenges from their brokerage business, uh, given the state of the market where, where they are. Um, 
You know, we talked about truckload, we talked about less than truckload, we talked about rails, we talked about parcels, and so we kind of talked about air freight. Uh, I know you cover shipping. You know, uh, is there anything there that we need to talk about? Any names that you like? Any any trends that you're looking for? I think the trends, you know, probably as opposed to talking about specific names in shipping, I think it probably makes more sense to talk about like the bigger picture trends that we're seeing, uh, because I think those are more interesting and kind of fit into the overall transportation framework. And I've always said this, I've covered shipping for a long time as well. And, and I think it really does help in terms of our view on the freight markets to see what's going on, because it's ultimately our global supply chains. On the container side, things are soft. I mean, the, the reality is, is it's very, it's a very similar dynamic that we're seeing in truckload because it is a consumer driven business, right? So imports into the US for stuff that's ultimately gonna make it on the shelves at Walmart and Target and Home Depot and all those kinds of companies. It's what drives the demand there. The problem you have on the shipping side, and my colleague in Europe who covers some of the liner companies, European liner companies certainly can attest to this, is there's a lot of capacity coming onto the water. So as you think big picture about supply chain, the reality is there's a ton of capacity in, in the form of very large ships being delivered over the course of the next 18 months. And that's probably going to keep ocean rates relatively low for an extended period of time. I think that's one of the big key differences between looking at that space and say things like truckload, where we can be a bit more optimistic, even though we're at a weaker point now, we just see the capacity dynamics working in our favor as we are seeing capacity exit. You're not gonna have capacity exiting the ocean side for an extended period of time. So just, just be careful as we're thinking about those names. That is that is for sure. Well, I guess we, we did uh, air, land, sea. Uh, I guess we did it all. So uh, listen, I, I could talk stock with you uh, for hours, but uh, Chris, I really appreciate your time. And uh, you know, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And if you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Check back to hear for conversation. Check back to hear conversations with C-suite executives from Canadian National, CSX, Werner, ArcBex, GXO, RxO, Starbulk, PAM Transport, and Scorpio Tankers, just to name a few. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at Logistics Lee. Thanks, everyone. And Chris, again, thanks for your time. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.